When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is uh, Bill Domnarski, and today uh, for a podcast for Book Notes, I mean, uh, not Book Notes, um, New Books Network, we're talking with Martin Clark and his book, his novel called The Planko Bounce. And of course, one of my first questions is going to be, what does that mean, Planko Bounce? So you are not just a uh, novelist, Martin, you're also a former judge. I think you sat on the bench for something like 30 years. Is that right? Yeah, pretty close. I um. <clears throat> I became a judge, a JNDR juvenile judge, and and it's you. I've gotten so old, it's sort of hard to recall the date. Something that should be simple. I started in 1992. In 1995, I changed jobs. I became a circuit court judge, and then I retired in 20 um, 2019, May of 2019, and that's pushing three decades. So you had been a practicing lawyer for uh, what seven or eight years before you went on the bench. Good math, exactly eight years. And you had gone to school at the University of Virginia Law School, one of the preeminent law schools in the country. And then you did what as a lawyer? What kind of work did you do? I did everything. I I was a general practitioner, but I basically was a courtroom lawyer. Um, I was Mm -hmm. in, I lived in district court, circuit court. Um, I did everything from speeding tickets to capital murder trials. Were you a uh, solo practitioner with the firm? How did you handle it? I worked with my father. Um, his name uh, was Phil Clark, and and my law partner also was Chris Corbett. There were three of us. The uh, the great thing about that for me was when I returned to Patrick County, Virginia, where I live post law school, I was able to go to work with my father and probably learn more in those six months about the nuts and bolts of practicing law than I did uh, given three years of um, uh, law school at UVA and then a bar review course. And that was uh, a great gift from my dad. I, I came back. I didn't have to look things up. I could just walk down the hall. You know, how do I file this? What's this pleading? It was a wonderful, wonderful gift and a great way to start. Now, I ask you that because in your other books, you your current book, the one we're going to be talking about, you have a public defender. But in some of your other books, you have small law firms. You have a husband and wife law firm in one of your books, for instance. Uh, so you really seem to be well versed in the small lawyer practice uh, that you're describing here. I've always been a solo practitioner myself, so I understand exactly the world you're describing. Um, how is it that in 2000 you published a novel? It's a pretty significant career change from sitting on the bench to writing novels. How did that happen? Um, I had always wanted to be a writer. And in fact, I went to law school because I was told at the time 
there was there there was a sentiment that a law degree, and you may have a take on this. If you get a JD, it's sort of a a type O degree that you can use it in a lot of places and for a lot of things, and contextually it fits in in, in different vocational situations. Uh, so I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I was a Latin major, a classics major at Davidson. I went to law school, but the entire time I was in law school, I was writing my first book and getting rejection letter after rejection letter. Um, so I had always um, wanted to do that. And then when I got out of law school with my JD, I discovered that a law degree, at least in my part of the world, is good for one thing, and that's practicing law and, and little else. Uh, I actually applied to teach writing at uh, a couple of universities. And they were interested, of course, in people who have a PhD or an MFA. They had no interest in, 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 in a guy with a, with a law degree. So I began practicing law, but at the same time, I wrote and wrote, and I spent, <clears throat> you and I were talking before we started recording, probably 20 years, uh, I accumulated rejection letters until in 1999, Gary Fiskajohn at Knopf uh, bought my first book, The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living. So did you think at that time that you should just become a novelist full-time as opposed to spending half your time at least working on the bench and half your time writing novels? Well, you know, there were two problems with that. Number one, um, given my schedule at that point, you know, 20 years to get one book out, I probably would go hungry. The, the, other, the other rub with that was is that in a fit of desperation after so many uh, slam doors and so many rejection letters, I promised all of the, um, I made this deal with God that I would give all the money from my first novel, thinking it would be about 10 grand um, to, um, to my local church, Stuart Presbyterian Church. So not only was my, did I have a slow pen, um, I didn't have any money from the first book, so it was really never, <laughs> it was really never a, a thought. I would, you know, certainly at that point in time, certainly you'd love to be able to write full time, and and by my third book, I was sort of in a position to do that. Um, and, and as I and I retired from the bench when I was, I guess, fifty eight. So it, it's worked out. Well, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but I do want to know how you felt about your work as a judge. Did you enjoy it? I did. I, I liked being a judge. Um, I liked being a writer more. When um, my first book was published, The Many Aspects of Mobile Home Living, and it was fairly um, colorful for, for that time. Um, the former governor of Virginia, who's from my little hometown, Jerry Belisles, read the book. I'd ask him for a blurb. And he he told me that it might cause me complications with my day job as a judge. And I said, you know, if it does, so be it. I would rather be a writer than a judge. I'll roll the dice on that. And fortunately, it never did. Well, as someone who uh, has written a book about judicial opinions, I have to ask, did you enjoy writing judicial opinions? No, not. It, it, and you would know this because you've done it. It's a different, different gig. Um, writing novels, uh, writing fiction is different than writing opinions. Um, and, and, and my day job as a judge always had to come first. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was important. You're dealing with fundamentally important things and you're dealing with people's lives. Writing a novel is just entertainment. 
but uh, you know, I never really saw a whole lot of intersection other than you wanted to be clear and communicate what you were trying to say. Different, just totally different style. All right. I wish I had more time to ask you about that, but we need to go on to your novel. Now, what I want you to do when it comes to the Plinko balance is I want you to give me a brief summary of the book and then follow that with an explanation of the title. <laughs> the John Irvin question. Um, and, and I'm terrible at that. The elevator pitch. Um, it takes me 300 pages to write a novel. I'm really bad at, at, at doing summation and I, I should be better at this after six books. Here is, and, and here's the problem. Anytime I try to do this, or I think writers try to do this, and you talk about themes or distilling your book down, it comes off as thematic, didactic, and sort of heavy handed. My books are about entertaining people. I want to give you a, some, some interesting characters, a, a, a fun, intricate plot, and a payoff at the end that you don't see coming. Um, and an honest payoff. I mean, anybody can it's, anybody can do Deus Ex Machina and crank something out, uh, but it's the ending. It's the um, usual suspects ending, um, where Kaiser Swayze walks away. And says, oh my goodness, uh, I, it was there all along. And maybe just maybe that ending in the book will nudge your perspective just a little bit. Essentially, having said that, what the book is about. The Plinko bounce is about what happens. So many, so much legal fiction. The template is you have some corruption somewhere. You have a dishonest judge. You have a juror who's being somehow blackmailed because of, uh, of, of an issue. You have a, a dishonest prosecutor. Um, and that's the template I think that we've all followed. But the Plinko bounce is about what happens when you have. You, you enter the legal system and everything goes correctly. You have an honest prosecutor, you have a good public defender, you have a good, fair, reasonable jury, but the results don't track the objective truth. And, and that's what the Plinko Bounce is about. Uh, the, 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 the Plinko Bounce, the title comes from uh, the Plinko game, which is um, uh, a, 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 one of the bits on um, The Price is Right, the TV show. Plinko involves an inverted pegboard, for lack of a better description, and you drop a disc and it bangs and plinks and ricochets and it goes down this pegboard and it stops at the bottom on a money amount and as a contestant, that's what you win. The curious thing about the game is that no matter if you drop the, the disc in the same place again and again, it will always end up in a different place. There's no rhyme or reason, it seems, to how it falls. And, and that is what this book is about. It is about that rare Plinko bounce case where everything goes sort of haywire in the system, this unicorn aberration, and who knows where this is gonna end up. There's that uh, proverb that talks about, uh, for the want of a nail and what follows. <laughs> so your yeah. book in a way is very much like that. You're talking about what happens when a legal loophole is exploited. Yes. The legal loophole here is that your main character, Andy Hughes, the public defender, a fine public defender, fine man, has a client, very unappealing client. He's a nasty man, but very, very bright. And he is accused of murdering someone. He confesses, but when the authorities read him as Miranda writes, they leave out a sentence. The sentence is, you have the right to remain silent. 
So tell me how that changes everything. The want of a nail, that one omission, the one sentence is left out and it changes everything. So how does your character, Andy Hughes, respond to that? Because it provokes, if I'm right in thinking this, a career crisis for him. Well, I mean, the Commonwealth's ace in the case, and in most cases, is a confession. And if you don't comply with Miranda, you're going to lose your confession. Um, and so the Commonwealth then loses its confession. It has other evidence, but as the story progresses, progresses um, there are Plinko balances and, and oddities and things that happen that give this guilty defendant a chance, a chance of, of beating a murder rap. And as an aside, I would say, and, and you probably have a sense of this as well. I think now in the world in which we live against this, this cacophony, this, this background of unhappiness with the legal system, many people believe that happens all the time, that the system is not accurate frequently. In, in my three decades, I had two Plinko bounce cases, two of these unicorn cases where legal technicalities shaped a case such that a jury got it and, and, did not know the whole truth and and returned the right verdict given the law, but a verdict once again that was not accurate in terms of the objective truth. I've I've had that happen twice in basically three decades. All right. You talk <clears throat> at the end of the book, you actually identify what's going on by saying that this is turning what the series of events is turning Blackstone on his head. Yeah. Now, tell us about Blackstone, who is famous for saying it's better than better that one guilty man go free than 10 innocent men. You, you complete it for me. Well, I think it was Blackstone. It said better than I think it's better than that. That 10 guilty go free than one. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Of course. Convicted. And um, and and in this case, basically what is happening, happening and sort of the, the slipstream of what's happening in court in this case is that one guilty man is going to go free, but yet about eight or nine innocent people are going to be touched or ruined uh, by this, this court proceeding. So your lawyer, Andy Hughes, has a problem in that he doesn't want to do this, doesn't want to pursue this legal loophole that we're talking about, the omission of the one sentence about how you have a right to remain silent, but he does it nonetheless, of course, because that's his job. Tell us right. what you think is going on in his head when it comes to this obligation to represent the client to the fullest. Hmm. No, one, no, no one's asked that. Let me, let me think about that for a moment. You know, and I guess I'm in his head when I'm writing it and, and, and we've all done this and, and, and any number of folks who've read this book have talked to me about that. And that's certainly one of the sub themes is how, how do lawyers, knowing someone is guilty, give them a full, thorough, and complete defense. And that's what Andy does because it's, it's his job. And he does that even though he despises on so many levels uh, the defendant, uh, Damian Bullens. And he does that um, even though it will make him unpopular in his small community. And, and, and he does that because it's his job, as he says, I swore an oath to do this. And, you know, I think that we have all represented a whole lot of guilty defendants, at least I have. And the, the easy case is when you know they're guilty and they're probably going to wind up being found guilty. 
the hard case is it's totally different than the Plinko bounce case. The hard case is where you truly believe you have an innocent client and, and it rests in your hand hands to make sure that client is found not guilty. That's the hard case. That's the one that you really worry about at least. So I'm not real sure that this would plague him intellectually or morally as much as just worrying to death that you might let an innocent client wind up uh, with a guilty verdict. Well, I want to contrast your book with the uh, 1959, I think it was 59 book, uh, Anatomy of a Murder, the first uh, major legal novel that is written by a lawyer about a lawyer who was very, very successful as a book. And then, of course, it was made into a movie with James Stewart, Otto Preminger, who directed it. Um, and he poses the question of the lawyer doesn't quite know that his client's guilty. How does he feel about putting up a great defense? And how does he feel once the client actually is acquitted? So you actually take that a little bit further. And his assessment is that that's what the lawyer does, supposed to do it, and that's what the system is supposed to do. You take it a little further by saying that you know your client is guilty. In fact, he has said he's guilty. In an act of murder, it's always held back until the final scene where we know for sure that the fellow, the defendant, had committed the crime. Hmm. So in your book, your lawyer does something extraordinary. He turns his back on the legal profession. He becomes a home builder. <laughs> in fact, I have, a, I have the quotation from the, uh, the book where you talk about, this is early on, only on page 36. So you have an unhappy public defender. Um, and he says, better yet, saws, hammers, pry bars, drills, chisel, nails, plywood, and lumber were a wonderful cure for the public defender woes that often ailed him. How is that? How does that work? Where you have your client, I mean, not your client, your main character, Andy Hughes, turning his back on their profession, taking up building and being happier for it. What does that say about the profession, the legal profession, and about the law generally? Well, Andy, and, and again, I, it's always embarrassing when I can't remember the particulars of my own books, but I think Andy had been a PD for either 17 or 19 years. 17, and you say? It, it is a thankless job. Um, and in my part of the world, our public defenders are really good, gifted, conscientious lawyers. I would let any of them represent me. But practicing law takes a toll on people, I believe, in, in, every, in every part of the system, judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys. And I think it's more and more commonplace now than when I started to see lawyers leave. Um, I know just looking at, and it's not a good sample, I understand, but at my local bar, and that, that three jurisdictions, not a lot, but a, a significant number of people have left, retired, changed jobs. Many times folks leave to take a corporate position or people get out of the, the courtroom give and take and, and the pressure of trying cases and, and they start something else. You want to do uh, trust and estate, you want to do wills, maybe guardianships, 
Uh, I've had uh, one really talented lawyer come to me and say, I just can't really stand, I don't like the pressure. I don't like having to deal with someone else's future. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to start doing guardianships and, 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 and sort of uh, become a paperwork lawyer. And I get that. It's a, it's a frustrating, sometimes thankless, and if you do it right, pressure packed gig. So I think it speaks to how difficult the job is, especially if you have something on the other end that you would enjoy doing, uh, like being a carpenter, like building homes, <laughs> like writing novels. Uh, they're, they're, it, it is a, it is a high stress business. Well, some have argued that one way out of this problem causing so much stress for people like the public defender you write about is to merge the lawyer and the client. So there was a 2008 book by this fellow, Daniel Markovitz, published by Princeton, talking about the legal profession. And his radical idea was that lawyers should be allowed to lie and cheat in the same way that their clients would lie and cheat if they, in fact, were representing themselves, or had the, the tools to represent themselves. So there was no gap now between the lawyer and his obligation to the bar, to society, and the client. The client actually now is supercharged with the lawyer. It's almost as though with the, the client and all his uh, failings now has the tool to represent himself and does by way of the lawyer. So that certainly solves the problem of the tension that's created when the lawyer is doing something he doesn't want to do. But of course, that seems to break down completely the reason for the legal profession. Mm. Tell me why I shouldn't see your book as a very cynical book. In a way, as I say, turning your back, your lawyer turns his back on the profession. You seem to be arguing that we should turn our back on their profession because it's well, not doing what we wanted to do. And that goes back to something I said earlier. Um, there are many lawyers. My, my father practiced until he was in his 80s. He loved the, the, the business. He loved practicing law. So many people do. And, and, and let me go back and say again, uh, as someone who spent a lot of time in the system, I think the system works and works well. As I noted earlier, in three decades, I had two cases that ended that went sideways because of the framework of the law. Um, now, you, 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 we've all had close cases, and that's the way the system works, reasonable doubt. And, and somebody you suspicion is guilty walks out uh, found not guilty because of the facts and the, the way the case is arranged, but only because of the system or, or because of the system. I've only had two cases, and one of them involved the theft of a chainsaw and some weed eaters. The Miranda warnings were butchered. The statement went out. Once the statement goes out, of course, then... Um, the fact that the, the cops found the chainsaw and weed eaters at the defendant's home goes out as well because they use that to improperly discover the, the evidence. And you're left uh, with a jury trial and, and a co-actor who has a deal and a criminal record and a vague description. And, that and the jury found the guy not guilty. Now, I've had one other case. So I'm positive about the system. And I can also say that I can speak to this. I get to go behind the velvet curtains with a lot of judges and a lot of people in the system. And at least in my part of the world, all the men and women that I work with are good, smart, decent, conscientious folks who really worried about doing the right thing. I, I understand that's not the perception 
of many judges today. But I can assure you that the folks I work with were all good people. Now, I live in a real small place, it's a real small slice of the world. And there are bad judges, there are bad prosecutors, there are bad defense attorneys. But I'm positive about the system. Yeah. And as I say, if, go ahead. The thing that's, that sticks with me, and I had to mark it a couple of times in the book because I thought it was so important, is that you have your character, you're describing uh, Andy as 43 stuck and stymied, which for me raises the question of how can the profession, how can we justify that kind of profession if the fellow is 43 stuck and stymied? Because he's a good guy, tremendous lawyer, but he's stuck and stymied. Something's going wrong in the, in the yeah, system. I don't know that's the system. It's just like any job. I mean, if if you're a public defender and, and that, that riff or that paragraph is, is it talks about why he's stuck in stymied because the book opens and he's trying in circuit court, our highest trial court in Virginia, or trial level court. Um, he is trying in front of a jury and all that comes with that, all the prep work, all the time. Um, he is trying a drunken public and littering case for a, a repeat offender, one of the reliables, as he calls them. And um, if you do that again and again, and that's part of how, what you're going to do in the PD's office, with the same as with any job, you become stuck, stymied, burned out, and and unhappy with having to do it again and again. I would imagine in any profession, there are probably physicians who who wake up and say, "Bummer, I've got to do another hernia surgery today or another colonoscopy," but that's my job. I'm going to go do it. Um, and I think that's a question that spreads wide over a lot of vocations. I mean. After 20 years, we probably all get to a point where <laughs> you're thinking, geez, there, there's probably something better than this out there, or I wish I could have a change. But by the same token, later in the book, when he gets a real case, when he gets this, this, nationally, um, um, this national murder case, he's excited. I mean, he says, this is what I went to law school to do. He's excited by it. And I think you need that mix. All right. Um Tell me about how this book is different from your other novels. Are you, um, all right, why don't we just start there? Tell me about your other novels and then try to put this novel, your current novel, The Plinko of Bounce, in the context of the others. I want to see how you see your career. That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> um, the, my first five books were written um, with Gary Fiskajohn as my editor, and Gary is, you know, a genius and 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 one of the most influential people in publishing. Um, he's no longer with Knopf, um, but he really shaped a lot of of how I wrote. And I remember him telling me Gary could could be very pointed, and I remember him telling me after I sent him a manuscript, "You need to remember Martin." that we're not paying you by the word. We're paying you for the right word. <laughs> and and I think that was always sort of my, my issue as a writer, is to sort of fall in love with my own writing, which is not a good thing. And I am billed as a legal thriller writer. And, and that's a good thing because it helps sales books. But if you read my books, you will soon discover that they're not traditional legal thrillers. Um, I, I have 
sort of discussions on everything from religion to, to women's fashion to, to good bourbon. And if you're looking for the, the, the short paragraph, three page chapters, um, and, and that sort of bang, bang plot velocity, that's not what I do. So some people will buy my books, open them up, start reading and say, this isn't a legal thriller. It, there's nothing thrilling about this. But this book, more than any other, is quick. Uh, it is more plot driven than all my other uh, books, and it is leaner than all my other books. And I, I wrote it with new people, uh, and, and you and I talked about this. I left Knopf and, and went to Los Angeles and signed up with an indie called Rare Bird. And um, I worked with a, a very young editor and a very young publicist. And they are everything that I am not. They are smart, hungry, and hip. And it really made a difference in the whole vibe of, of this book in, in terms of its pace, in terms of its tone. And so this is a different book. It's, it's, it is not sort of an apex culmination of, of, of uh, the substitution order, which was my last book, which is complicated and, and, and has lots of 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 plot tricks, it is it is much more linear. So I'm not well, sure where that means I've arrived. It packs a real punch, is what the the novel does. I think you use the right word in lean. It is a lean book, and it packs a punch. And that's why I'm kind of stressing this idea of the punch that I see you throwing at the profession, throwing <laughs> at the whole system of law, the way we practice it. But since I have you here, since you know so much about lawyers and about judges. I have a couple of questions about lawyers and judges for you. Tell okay. me about, as you see it, the relationship, because this is brought up in your novel, I think, implicitly. Tell me about the relationship, as you see it, between personality and lawyering. Hmm. Um, the example I would point to is your district attorney, who is right. publicity-driven, but he's, more right. than that. he's a jerk. He's a real jerk. And the fact that he he's is. a jerk affects everything. Now, jerkiness, I think, is an aspect of personality. So maybe you haven't seen it the way that I've seen it in my, actually this year it's, or this month, it's 40 years that I've been practicing. Uh, I see personality on display all the time, especially with prosecutors. What do you think of that? I think you're right. And that, we, we will agree on that. And I think the problem is that prosecutors are Commonwealth's attorneys, as they're called in my part of the world. It's an elected office, and very, very often it is the stepping stone. It's the springboard to the neck to to political office, to to um, a seat as a delegate in the House of uh, House of Delegates or a senator, and so consequently, and it's also itself an elected position. So consequently, so many not so many, but a lot of decisions are filtered through that lens. Um, how will this serve me? Can I keep my job? How will this play? Um, is this person connected? Um, and it lends itself, it causes all the theatrics we see in the courtroom, which are worthless. And as a judge, you just tolerate that because clients like it, they're, they're, they're paying the fee, but all the theatrics, the arm waving, the, the silly gotcha cross questions that mean nothing and establish nothing, all that's part and parcel uh, of sort of the entertainment factor. And so if you have prosecutors who are elected 
by the people that sometimes the, the desire to hold that office sometimes trumps the law, what's right and ethics. And I have seen that more often. I want to be real clear, not here. I've worked with with nothing but really good straight up prosecutors, both of whom are now judges and they're great judges. It doesn't happen here uh, where I work, but I certainly have seen it. The other thing that's problematic for me, not in Virginia, but in many jurisdictions and next door in North Carolina, uh, judges are elected. That is just an unworkable to me situation. And, and not only are they elected, but you can take a, a 10 grand donation from a lawyer, at least in North Carolina, you can become a judge, get elected and have that lawyer represent someone in your court the next day. That's just not a workable system. It isn't. Um, and, and, and can you imagine the headline, you know, judge in, in North Carolina, judge um, kicks out murder case on technicality, election held in three days? That's just not a workable situation, and you and I are on the same page with that. Well, part of me wants to say, well, it happens in the Supreme Court of the United States also, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and look, at, look at Clarence Thomas. The, the idea that they do not have an enforceable set of, of, of ethical guidelines is, is just breathtaking. It is so fundamentally wrong and frustrating. And what you have to understand is, is that trickles down and affects all of us. If, if they're doing it and you're hearing this and, and, and your, your average reader is not sort of sorting through this and looking for the nuance, they just think this happens everywhere. Um, and, and I completely agree. He, I would have been in Richmond before it's called the Jerk Committee, ironically enough, Judicial Inquiry and Review Commission. I would have been, I would have been there the afternoon after all the story broke and, and, and punished if not removed from the bench for some of the stuff those folks did. It's just mm -hmm. so wrong. And, and, and then to give lip service to it, to hand out these, these phony, not phony, but these toothless guidelines with no enforcement mechanism, it's just wrong. It is just so fundamentally wrong. And I agree with you. Well, I, I have real problems with the Supreme Court. I think we're in a, a very dark uh, place right now. But at the same time, I don't know that enforcement um, that there can't be any enforcement. The Constitution doesn't allow yeah, for right other than impeachment to remove somebody. Um, back in 1937, when Franklin Roosevelt was having such a hard time with the uh, four horsemen on the court who didn't want to pass his or didn't want to affirm his legislative uh, attempts to uh, fix the Depression, he uh, he said. Uh, we need better people on the court because at the time there were some pretty nasty people in the court. Mick Reynolds was the best example of this. And I'd say that that applies today. We need better people. Um, we don't, <laughs> these people who are violating, not really violating, but who are doing the things that are grabbing all of the attention, taking these trips and all this other stuff, they're just not good people. They're not. And the country is entitled to good people on the court. That's my view. So, um, Tell well, me about. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt or. I was just saying, you know, um, it, it's interesting to me to watching. There, there are two things I would say. Number one, you know, there is really no one on the the Supreme Court who has ever been a judge before, 
a trial court judge. And as a trial court judge, I think oh, there's that, one. There, there's one. Um, oh, Kagan. There's one who actually was a uh, trial judge, circuit judge, and now on the Supreme Court. Oh, uh, yeah. It's only uh, Sotomayor. She's only the second. So, yeah, one. yeah, it, right. And and um, and 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 the and she was also a prosecutor. And it's interesting if you read a case called Bryant versus Michigan. Um, the the quote liberal. Uh, the prosecutor comes out and she corrects the, the this entire testimonial mess that that uh, Justice Scalia has made. But at any rate, um, the last real trial judge that we had was, and she just passed away, Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, right. She was a trial court judge, Supreme Court judge in Arizona and state court. And I just think that we would benefit a whole lot from having somebody who's actually been in a courtroom and tried cases. The other thing that I would say in response to that, there are these interesting sort of crucible moments. And, and I think I, I listened to some of the argument yesterday on the, the opioid case, the Sacklers. I, I think that's how you say the surname. Right. Um, and and to watch these the the the, the these different people with their different views and philosophies and how, how they all came down on that, um, both in terms of policy and law. And I, I, that's going to be an interesting decision. I think you're going to have, you're going to have votes and justices in different places than you normally see them. That's rare. But, you know, for me, to go back to what you were saying, the idea that as a justice of the Supreme Court, you would just accept that kind of largesse, that kind of, quote, gifts, end quote, from from people to live a lifestyle you can't afford, all the doors that opens, it's just it's just breathtaking to me. It, circuit Court judge in Patrick County, Virginia certainly couldn't do that. Tell me a little bit. I, I don't want you to talk about uh, friends and colleagues uh, from the bench, but you know enough about judges to talk generally about this. Tell me about the phenomenon of black robitis. The oh, yeah. Who, tell me about that, because there's a lot of that going on on the Supreme Court, where people begin to think that there's something other than who they are, that they're somehow descended from God. There are all these jokes about federal judges believing that they are the equal, if not the superior of God. So tell me about black robitis. What is that? Um, the job becomes the person, and or and the person becomes the job. And and I really believe in in, in a number of contexts. And in Virginia, we have this. In Virginia, uh, the robitis ends at age seventy one by law. Oh, we have an age limit on our judges. Um, and, and in fact, the most storied um, Supreme Court justice. Um, in, in Virginia, Justice Carrico, who was a really good chief justice. I, I can't, he was chief justice forever. He did a great job. He's a good judge or justice. Um, he, you know, uh, he, he got to be 71 or two and, and there was talk about, and no, he, he had to retire. And that's a good rule. So, it, and, and it ends. But there are a lot of folks and without naming names, I, I know one. And once you become the judge, you just become, uh, there's a word I would like to use, and I probably shouldn't use in the podcast, become, you become insufferable and unbearable. 
Um, and that's that's not a federal <laughs> phenomenon, Bill. That's that that is that happens um, in in every court in every state every day. Um, and and part of that used to be they they would just until we we had a retirement a forced retirement. Part of that used to manifest itself in the worst way with recall judges, substitute judges. You'd retire. Mm -hmm. And then you would you would continue to work into your 80s. What you would not continue to do is to follow the law, to read the advance sheets, to go to the seminars, to keep up. And as a young lawyer, I just dreaded I'd get this 85 year old guy and he would come in. He hadn't he hadn't cracked a, a, a code in, in 20 years. Well, that's the way we did it in 1975. And if you suggested <laughs> he was incorrect, then you would be punished. It would, he would become punitive. And we had those judges. Um, and. And and I think it's human nature to love the attention. Everyone thinks you're funny. Everyone um, is kind to you, to your face. Um, uh, but it it really is an issue. And the best way to stop it is just to make people retire at seventy or seventy-one. Well, I have a, a friend who uh, was appointed to judge, and after he was appointed, I <laughs> probably should have done this, but I said to him, "Look, the fact that you've been appointed doesn't make you any smarter." <laughs> any more insightful, any more of a better writer, a better thinker, a better reader. You're the same person. So he reacted kind of strongly, but later he told me, well, that was good advice because the truth is the job can take over you. The personality is, is affected by having all that deference thrown your way. So I on the bench, people were always use the technical precise term they were always kissing their ass i imagine exactly what it, must go to your head. it has to in a way one of the things that that i did the the second part of that is that you become aloof and isolated um and some of that is by design i understand some of that you have canons and things you can and cannot do every year after my first year on the bench and you can't do this in, in every jurisdiction I would set out and I would go visit in person in their office on their turf every lawyer in my district. And really? and I yes. And and one or two years I didn't go and I sent out a survey. I also went to see the magistrates, I went to see the probation officers in their office and and, and I would say and I realize people are not going to tell you a whole lot but can I do anything better? What could I do to be a better judge? What could I do to improve your world and uh, there were a couple of people a, a probation officer uh, her name uh, is randy cassell and randy would flat out tell she would just say you're doing this we can't understand you this is a bad idea i would also meet with the sheriffs um and sort of attended to that at noon and in any case i had if i had two lawyers and it was a break or or, or more than two lawyers i would always invite them to lunch and I would buy their lunch. They could not buy mine, and we would all go to lunch. If I did a jury trial, I would eat with both law. I couldn't eat with one, but I would eat with both lawyers. And and I thought that was was very helpful. And and that cuts down the isolation. You have a little better communication. And I was young enough when I started. There were senior members of our bar who were quite legendary, and they would just speak their mind to me. Uh, especially when I was in district court and they didn't come in that courtroom. And I thought that was very helpful. And, and I really listened to them. I was still afraid of them. 
I was a I was a district court judge, and, and they weren't coming. They were they were doing high dollar civil cases. They were doing murder cases. They weren't coming in district court to visit with me in a child child custody case. And and, and they would give me really unvarnished uh, opinions, and it was helpful. <laughs> Did your colleagues ever say anything to you about your your approach to getting the opinions of other people? Yes, um, some did not like it, but and um, and and I don't think anyone really adopted my let's go to lunch deal. Um, but it, it was sort of a mixed bag, um, and I will say now we have a, a, a it's been a generational change here, and we have we have lawyers and and judges who really interact a lot. You will see our current circuit court judge at musical events at Floyd Fest, the music festival, talking with folks, hanging out. And he is, I've been around him a lot and I really admire the fact that he will meet new people and he will simply say, um, my name is Jim. Nice to meet you. And, and I've also been around those judges back in the day who'd say, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm Judge Smith. Nice to meet you. Um, mm -hmm. But he has, he gives off none of that vibe. He is humble and smart, and he is one more Cracker Jack judge, and he is respected by our bar. And I think part of that is because he interacts with them and has an open door. All right. Now that you've uh, left the bench, <clears throat> do you consider yourself a full-time novelist now? I do. I, I like to say I used to have two, jo two full-time jobs, and I only have one. All right. So do you see the world any differently now that your job is only, in your mind, writing novels? No, not, not really. You're not more attuned to finding plot threads to weave together for a novel. Oh no! I listen. I've I did like three decades on the bench. I, I'll never lack for for stories or plots or entertaining events. It's just a question of I'm a slow pen. It's just a question of writing them down. Uh, you you may have gotten this letter or this email before. At least once a month, I get an email from someone who says to me, I have the greatest story in the world. I, you won't <laughs> believe what has happened to me. You and I can meet. We will sign a deal. I will tell you the story, and you write it, and we will split the money. Do you get those? A couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I get that once a month. And I always write them back, and I say, I don't lack for great stories, some that are so fantastical fiction wouldn't wouldn't do them justice well tell me what, this. I, what I lack for is time to write them down tell me this when do you know that you have something that is to say looking at your shelf of works or your five or your six books when did you know for each of them that you had something that had to be explored and completed of course, the first one, <laughs> I had something for 20 years, and, and I wasn't really sure that it was something that anybody wanted to read. But now what will happen is after I finish a book and it's published, this book, um, The Plinko Bounce was published September 12th. And, and I've been on book tour and traveling and going to different places. And that's my vacation and sort of my reward for the work. And plus, it would be difficult to write, you, you know, on the road and in hotels. So probably starting in January or February, I will begin a new book. And yeah, I don't know how many more I have left. I'm 64, I'll be 65 in June, and I've got about a three, four year turnaround. So I'll be pushing 70 when the next one drops. 
but I already have the character, the little seed of how it will start. But the first part of writing for me is just sort of thinking and organizing and puzzling to get the plot down. And I will then start on my plot. And before I begin writing with real commitment, I'll have that plot down from Alpha to Omega. And, and it's just, I have the character and I have the beginning and I know what I want to happen. And I had a little brush with this once in court. So I'm good to go. Okay. All right. Um, for all the listeners out there, the book is called The Blinko Bounce. It is well worth both the time and the money to uh, buy it and read it. It's one of the best legal novels I've read. I think I've read almost all the important ones because it not only tackles big issues, it gives wonderful characters to the reader. So I really recommend it. Martin, it's been a delight talking to you. I want to talk to you for a minute or so if you have the time after we uh, sign off here. But this is a book that everyone should take a look at. All right, so Martin, thank you very much for doing this. And I'm going to turn the recorder off and you're still going to be there. So let me do that. Here we go. Okay.